Amen. Indeed, that is uh, how you're supposed to sing. The, the redeemed of the Lord are to sing loud and vibrantly, and that last song was a rousing rendition of standing on the promises, but too often I fear we're merely sitting on the premises. We oftentimes or at times catch ourselves singing greatly uh, about our God while merely sitting there thinking of nothing but our soariness. And we need to indeed uh, understand that, that when we sing those great songs, those great hymns of the faith, it ought to rouse us to work. It ought to rouse us to fight. It ought to rouse us to stand in the precious promises of God. Now, last week, we saw that indeed God is a, a blessed God, a wonderful, loving God. And we saw that we are to remind ourselves regularly of God's glorious grace and manifold mercy and redeeming us from our prodigal past through his plentiful provision of forgiveness. This week we want to turn and look now at how that manifold grace should play itself out within our faithful Christian service. Indeed, we were not just saved so we could sit soak and sour. We were saved so that we could serve the living God. And as we come this morning, I want to begin by telling you the story that Howard Hendricks, a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, used to tell often. And he would tell about Bud Wilkinson, who used to be the the coach of the top-rated uh, Oklahoma Sooners football team. A reporter, a young reporter, one day enthusiastically approached Bud Wilkinson and asked, Coach Wilkinson, tell us what contribution collegiate football has made toward physical fitness in America. Coach Wilkinson looked and said, I do not believe that college football has made any contribution to physical fitness in America. Stunned and shocked, the reporter dumbfoundedly looked and asked, what do you mean? Bud Wilkinson looked and he said, listen, I define football in this way. It is 22 men on the gridiron who desperately need rest and 50,000 people in the stands who desperately need exercise. Dr. Hendricks concluded the story by saying, and that sums up the Christian Church of America. We have a couple, a few that run around and work within the church, but they're mostly those who sit and soak and sour. Sadly, today, Christianity in America, in our churches, is nothing more than a spectator sport. We come on Sunday and we sit and we watch as the professionals go about the game. After all, that's what they're paid to do, right? But me, I'm just a layman. I'm just a person who's sitting here. I'm not anybody special. I don't have a job. I don't have a place of service. I don't have anything to do. But as we saw last week, each and every Christian has a testimony, a work of God, where he has delivered us from our prodigal past by his plentiful provision of forgiveness so that we could then work out and serve the living God. Indeed, every believer in Jesus Christ is indeed a minister and a priest before the living God. Every believer is to be a functioning member of the body of Jesus Christ here within this world with a God-given ministry that he has gifted you specifically to perform within the body life. Each of us are to stand in the gap and fight the good fight for the Savior who stood in the gap and spanned the gap so that God's forgiveness might flow to you and I. Question this morning for us is, are we merely sitting on the premises or are we standing on the promises 
Are we sitting, soaking, and souring, or are we serving God with the gifts that he has given to us so that we might see the gospel go forward throughout this world to the ends of the earth? As we come this morning, Paul challenges and charges young Timothy, Timothy, fight the good fight of faith. And I stand before you this morning saying to you, if you have been redeemed by the work and person of Jesus Christ, then you need to stand and fight the good fight of faith. Let us take our Bibles and turn there to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. And let's stand in honor of the reading of this God's holy and inspired word. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. Paul writes to young Timothy and he says this. This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. Fight the good fight, keeping faith and a good conscience. Lord, Indeed, it is our prayer that we would be people who would also stand alongside of the testimony of Timothy and be people who fight the good fight, who, Father, live life holding fast, keeping, uh, keeping the faith and a good conscience before you and before the world. Lord, allow us in the midst of this time today, Father, to see our sin, to see our Savior, to increasingly surrender ourselves, to be useful servants for your kingdom. Father, allow us now as we study this text, Father, to have our eyes illumined by the work of the Spirit as he brings the passage of Scripture to bear upon our lives. And Father, may we go out differently than we came in. Father, we pray pray now that you would speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. We see here within this passage that the follower of Christ is to fight the good fight as they hold to the faith and a good conscience in the ministry God has entrusted to them. The follower of Christ is to fight the good fight as they hold fast to the faith and a good conscience in the ministry that God has entrusted to them. Indeed, as we fulfill the ministry that God has gifted us for, as we fulfill the ministry that God has entrusted to us, we are to be men and women who fight the good fight of faith while we hold to the faith and keep a good conscience. Paul is writing to young Timothy, his son in the faith, as as an older, wiser, more experienced apostle, giving words of counsel and wisdom to a young man on the verge of what would be a lifetime of service on behalf of the living Savior. One of the most fundamental things that the apostle Paul wants Timothy to understand is that he must fight the good fight of faith. He must understand that at times, though this world seems seems to be nothing, pressing there is a battle a spiritual battle a spiritual war that is raging and indeed it is a battle between God and Satan between good and evil and Timothy finds himself in the center of the battle there at Ephesus battling against some false teaching and flawed doctrines of wolves who have crept in to ravage the sheep 
And he says, listen, Timothy, I want you to understand this is war and you need to fight the good fight. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 12 and 13, as we saw just a few minutes ago, remind us of this truth. It says there, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the spirit, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything, stand firm. Having done everything, stand. Take a stand. Stand in the gap. Stand for the truth. Stand for the gospel. When we think of our lives as an act of war within this world, we understand that we are wrestling against the world, against our own flesh, and against the devil and his minions as well. So Paul orders young Timothy, fight the good fight. But look first at verse 18, and let us begin there by seeing the command that was entrusted to God's servant. The command entrusted to God's servant. Paul begins here by commanding young Timothy, his true child in the faith, about which a glorious and grand prophecy had been made about his usefulness to God's glorious kingdom. He begins there by saying, Timothy, you guard the precious gift of the gospel and its ministry against the ravenous wolves that have come in uh, to the church there at Ephesus. Command is the same word that Paul has already used three other times within these first 18 verses. First, there in verse 1, he says that Paul is a minister uh, according to the commandment of God our Savior and Jesus Christ. He says, number 2 in verse 3, or secondly in verse 3, he says, Timothy, I am instructing you, I am commanding you to tell some men to stop teaching these strange doctrines. In verse 5, he comes back and says, and our commandment is a commandment to, that leads to love with what? A pure conscience, uh, a good, uh, I'm sorry, um, uh, a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. And now in verse 18, he comes back and he says, once again, Timothy, listen, I command, the command that I have given to you, the gospel of Jesus Christ, I entrust to you. It is your job to guard it. It is your job to take care of it. This word command is a military word that means an order passed through the ranks of superior to subordinate. Paul receives his orders from the Lord. He then passes them on to Timothy, who in turn is to rely or to relay them on to others within the church at Ephesus. The word conveys here a sense of urgent obligation. Donald Guthrie in his, his commentary on this passage says, Timothy is a solemnly Timothy is solemnly reminded that the ministry is not a matter to be trifled with, but listen, an order from the commander-in-chief. His order is from the commander-in-chief. Ultimately, his order is from God. God has entrusted the gospel and commanded Paul concerning the gospel to be a servant of the gospel. Now Paul has commanded Timothy to be a servant of the gospel. And now Timothy is commanding others to be a servant of the gospel. And that, that ultimate command comes from the commander-in-chief. 
But Paul also says that he has entrusted this command to Timothy. And that word entrust is used of entrusting something valuable to someone for safekeeping. It would be used of uh, used when you make a, a deposit within the bank. You are giving over your money, entrusting it to the bank so that they might guard it for safekeeping. It is also used within the, within the Greek uh, language to, to point out when someone entrusts someone else to one's care. In other words, if I were to give uh, William to you and say, I want you to guard him. I want you to take care of him. I am entrusting to you this child. Then you are not only responsible for, for the uh, one who has been entrusted to you or for the thing that has been entrusted to you, but number two, you are accountable for what has been entrusted to you as well. He says, listen. It always implies that a, this, William Barclay says it this way, it always implies that a trust has been reposed in someone for which he will be called to give an account. Now, many of you within the shot of my voice this morning are men under orders or women under orders. You know what it means when your commanding officer comes to you and says that you need to jump. Your question is not, should I jump or not, but how high? You understand when your commanding officer tells you something to do, you are immediately to move with nothing hindering you in any way to make sure that the task that has been given to you is done and done properly, right? You understand this passage far better than civilians can. But indeed, Paul is here saying, listen, God has entrusted to us the gospel message of Jesus Christ. And he has given a command from a throne that is higher than any other throne within this world, within this land. Indeed, he has given a, a, a command to guard the message of the gracious gospel with our lives. Paul says, listen, Timothy, you are to guard that which I have entrusted to you. I have commanded you. Uh, this command I have entrusted to you, you are to guard it and you are to protect it. The lesson for us is this. The ministry is not optional for some of us who are more dedicated to the gospel than others. God doesn't call for volunteers. The ministry is a sacred trust given from God to each and every individual that has experienced his grace that flows from Calvary for which each person must obey and for which each person must be called to give an account. If God has called you to himself, if he has saved your soul, then he has called you to serve him and his particular orders for you as to how and where he wants you to serve must be seen as a sacred deposit that has been entrusted to you by your commander in chief. You're under orders. Timothy, your ministry is to please your commander, Jesus Christ. Christian, your ministry is to please your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You are under obligation by His grace to live for His glory. The command given to God's servants make disciples by proclaiming the gospel is what we are to do each and every day within our lives. Secondly, we see not only the command entrusted to God's servants, but secondly, the war in which God's servants fight. 
the war in which God's servants fight. And we see there in verse 18, uh, in the second half of verse 18, uh, that you that by them you fight the good fight. Paul has already alluded to the fact that there was spurious teaching that had crept into the Ephesian church. Indeed, this did not surprise Paul at all because he had already said that this would happen. Back in Acts chapter 20, verses 27 through 30, he has already warned. He said, listen, I have proclaimed to you the whole counsel of God's word. And so no man's blood is on my hands. But listen, you must guard yourselves. You must protect yourselves and the flock from what? from spurious teaching, from wolves that would come in and ravage. And he says, not only would the wolves come from outside, but the wolves will come from inside. Even some of the elders to whom he was saying goodbye, there in Acts chapter 20, he says, some of you will rise up and draw men away after yourselves. And so now he's reminding young Timothy, you've got to fight for the good and glorious gospel. And this fight will not only be played out outside the doors of the church, inside the doors of the church as well. Indeed, some of those who claim to be friends will turn out to be foes. And Timothy, you need to stand against anyone who would change the message of the gospel. The word fight signifies here a campaign rather than a single military battle. Indeed, to change the metaphor slightly, this would be a marathon race and not a 100-yard dash. It's not just a short uh, short run and then you collapse on the ground and try to recover. This is a long and steady progression that you are involved in. The enemy is trying to trip you up. The enemy is trying to make you drop out. But indeed, we are to be committed to serving the Lord faithfully. And in order to serve the Lord faithfully, you've got to realize that you're in it for the long haul and you've got to commit even when things are dark and difficult, even when things get bad, even when when the lives, trials and tribulations of life press in, you have to stand. Some people get all excited about ministry, but then they burn up just as quickly as they caught on fire. Some people, uh, some people get excited until they hit problems, until they come against obstacles. And then when they are unable to overcome the obstacles, they throw in the towel and they quit. And other, people's bail, other people bail out when they catch criticism. And I can assure you of this, if you are faithfully ministering the gospel of Jesus Christ in the context of your home, in the context of your family, in the context of your friends, in the context of the church, in the context of the place that you work, you are going to come against opposition. There are going to be people who talk about you, people who make snide remarks behind your back. Listen, you're going to catch problems if you're a minister of the gospel. But you need to be ready to stand and to endure. Others expect instant results, and when this doesn't happen, they get discouraged and they throw in the towel. Others are so excited about ministry, they don't bother getting any training. They don't bother becoming a disciple. They don't bother increasing, the, increasing their understanding and knowledge of the Word of God and walking by the Spirit of God. And so they run dry after just a few minutes or just a few months. All of these problems could be solved if people would realize that the ministry to which God is called each and every one of us is a lifetime campaign against a powerful enemy known as Satan. We are warring on God's side and we know that greater is he that is within me than he that is within the world. 
Paul comes back in chapter 6, verse 12, and he says, Young Timothy, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Paul indeed knew many problems, many trials and troubles and tribulations through the course of his life. And at the end of his life, as he is pressing in towards death, he looks back upon the totality of his life in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7. And he says to young Timothy, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. I've done it. It was hard. It was difficult. There were a lot of times that I didn't know exactly what was going to happen, but God has strengthened me and sustained me. Timothy, guard the gospel. Fight the good fight. In our own generation, the church has seen the gospel watered down by those who would proclaim the message of the gospel of self-help and self-esteem. People like Robert Schuller, who said in his book entitled Self-Esteem, the New Reformation on page 68, to be born again means that we must be changed from a negative to a positive self-image, from inferiority to self-esteem. What? That is not the gospel. He goes on to say that this happens when we meet the ideal one, Jesus Christ, who receives us as his peer and then treats us as his equal. As a result, the the core of our life changes from shame to self-esteem. And we can pray, our Father in heaven, honorable is our name. Not The gospel, the gospel is not self-help and self-esteem. It is not I clean myself up and I pull myself up by my own bootstraps. The gospel is we were a sinner separated from God because we had rejected and reviled God at every point, at every turn. And yet God in his grace reached down and pulled us up and made us saints by his grace. That's the gospel. And so when Joel Osteen walks in uh, in Robert Schuller's footsteps and he looks and he says, here's how you have your best life now. Not repent of your sins, not place your faith in Jesus Christ. But listen, you just think better about your situation and you'll have your best life now. No, no. This week he even got cornered. Got pressed in. He couldn't back out of it. Is homosexuality a sin? He has tried to avoid at every place along the road ever saying that there is sin that separates man from God. Finally, this week, he had to give the right answer. Yes, the Bible says homosexuality is a sin. Thank you very much, Joel Osteen, but don't leave us there because here's the reality. Yes, sin is prevalent in your life and my life, but the hope is the gospel of Jesus Christ that God redeems those who are sinners by nature and by choice and makes them saints by his glory and grace. That is the message. And we get half of it when we preach self-help and self-esteem. We need to understand Paul says we are to fight the good fight to protect the merciful message that we prodigals have been redeemed by the plentiful provision of God's forgiveness that flows from the cross of Jesus Christ our Lord. We need to be people who understand that the war in which God's servants fight is a war, a battle for the gospel that never ends. 
If we ever change the message, if we ever modify the message, if we ever water down the gospel, we indeed are endangering ourselves from falling away. Thirdly, this morning, I want us to see the vital testimony of God's faithful servants. It says in verse 19, as he uh, moves on, fight the good fight, keeping faith and a good conscience. Paul now turns to exhort young Pastor Timothy in the vital necessities of godly servants' lives. He begins with an exhortation to keep the faith. Keep the faith. In other words, hold on to the true gospel as the life-changing transformational vessel that will turn a sinner into a saint. Hold fast to the experiential reality that God, in His manifold mercy, in His limitless love, who found you a sinner and saved your soul by by His grace and for His glory. You keep trusting in the truth of God's redeeming work to be the hope through the midst of the darkest and dreariest of days. You keep holding to the pure doctrine of salvation from God by grace through faith in Christ alone. Listen, stand fast when the storms assail you, when people seek to bring you in under all kinds of spurious teachings. You stand fast and say, the gospel of Jesus Christ is just this. I am a sinner who needs a Savior, and He, God, has provided the Savior in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's what we're supposed to be about. Keeping the faith, keeping, holding on to that strong doctrinal teaching that Jesus Christ alone is the Savior of the world. Well, I want another Savior. I want something else. You can't have it. God has only provided one way into his kingdom, and that is through the work of Jesus Christ. Secondly, he says, not only are you to be keeping the faith, you are also to be living with a good conscience. He says here that you are to walk uprightly before God and man. He is not to violate his conscience, which would be shaped by the word of God and by the word of God, also by the spirit of God, bringing the word of God to bear upon his life. Indeed, we must understand this, that belief and behavior always go hand in hand. Belief and behavior always go hand in hand. Some of you have tried to avoid this within your life. You have said, I have received the gospel, but I don't want the gospel of Sunday morning to impact my living on Monday morning. I don't want to live by the ethics and by the rules, by the morals, by the implications of the word of God. And so I'm going to say on Sunday morning, I receive Jesus Christ as my savior and he's my Lord. But on Monday, I'm going to cheat on my taxes. I'm going to cheat at my work. I'm going to run around and fill myself with all kinds of debaucheries. I'm going to have sex with my boyfriend or my girlfriend. I'm going to I'm going to run around and I'm going to participate in, in all kinds of malice and hatred towards other people. I'm going to run around and I'm going to be drunk with wine. But that doesn't affect my Sunday morning religion, does it? Oh, yes, it does. Belief and behavior are always married to one another. And here he says, you need to be a person who is keeping a good conscience, a pure conscience before God. And that is result. And if you are not one, then you need to understand it is resulting in the subsequent shipwreck 
of your faith. Quite often, indeed, doctrinal errors are the result of moral problems rather than intellectual problems. Men who teach false doctrine often do so in order to avoid the moral implications of God's truth in their own lives. And so you have pastors that are participating in openly homosexual relationships. You have pastors that are openly known within the community as drunkards, as womanizers, as adulterers. These things ought not be so. You have people within the church who are openly known and even laughed about the sin that is within their lives. These things cannot exist if you are living and keeping a good conscience before the living God. Indeed, the basis for having a ministry in the lives of others is to have a personal trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and His Word and in order and to walk in obedience to Him. Indeed, that is when we are keeping faith and having a good conscience. We live in a day that has gone crazy over methods. Hardly a week goes by, hardly a day goes by when I don't receive in the mail some shiny flyer with all the latest methods on how to build up the church in the areas of nickel noise and noise and noses but understand this we're not just interested in nickels numbers and noise we are interested in the souls of men and women that indeed we believe when we make disciples when we teach people how to keep and hold to the faith how to keep and hold to a good conscience then we see lives transformed and that transformation in our life pours over into the lives of others and now we are seeing a community transformed by the preaching and teaching of the gospel not by some method to increase numbers, nickels, and noise. Listen, we must be committed to the gospel above everything else. And the gospel is not for those that have no sin and therefore need no Savior. The gospel is for those who know their great sin and need an even greater Savior named Jesus Christ. Those that taste and know God's salvation are those that have received the Holy Spirit and who are being led increasingly into conformity with the image of God's glorious Son, Jesus Christ. It's okay, listen, within this church to not be okay, but it's not okay to stay that way. It's okay if you come in with problems and you say, my life is shambles, my life is falling apart. I understand. I've been in the same place. I know the same experience, but I also know this, that my great Savior is greater than any sin that I had, and He took the the parts, the pieces of my life when I fell off the wall and shattered my life into a million pieces and he put them back together and he can do it in your life pastor you don't know where i've been you don't know where what i've been through i don't have to i know my god and i know his ability to save your soul and to secure you and to sanctify you in the work and the power of his spirit Listen, there is no one so bad that he cannot be saved, and there is no one so good that he need not be saved. Each and every one of us within this church need the Savior, Jesus Christ. We need to look to him and seek him. The vital testimony of God's faithful servant is seen in our lives as we are keeping the faith and a good conscience before God and before this world. Finally, this morning we see that there is a warning there's a warning that paul gives to young timothy he warns him of the shipwreck that he sees of other souls 
He says, listen, Timothy, I want to warn you. These are the things you should be doing. You should be committed to the gospel above all else. You should be fighting the good fight of faith. You should be keeping, a good, keeping the faith and keeping a good conscience. But listen, Timothy, if you're ever tempted to vary, if you're ever tempted to waver, if you're ever tempted to succumb, you need to remember this thing. You need to look at the shipwrecked lives of other souls and warn yourself against going that direction. Paul points out openly that there have been some teaching mystical and spurious teachings in Ephesus, perhaps in one of the most embarrassing moments of their lives, Hymenus and Alexander now appear within Scripture as testimonies of how not to live the Christian life. These two guys had indeed been participating in those strange doctrinal teachings. In those mystical myths, those endless genealogies that Paul warned Timothy about in verses 3 and 4. And Paul now describes their lives as shipwrecks, not of the sea, but shipwrecks of the soul. Because they have rejected love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. They have tried to supplant the gospel of grace with a gospel of intellectualism, with a gospel of good works, the gospel of self-help and self-esteem. Strange doctrines, wrong motives, and ill-placed faith always result in a shipwreck of the soul. Paul says, Timothy, don't go down these paths. Some say, today I have made peace with my God. Perhaps you're sitting here today and you said something like, well, I've squared everything away with the big guy upstairs. I'm okay because I'm a good person. And I simply need to quote to you the words of our Savior Jesus Christ. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. You can't square away your account before God. You can't ever be a good enough person to be acceptable into His kingdom by your own works. You can never make your own deal with God. God says, here's my way of accepting you. You believe in the person and work of Jesus Christ or you cannot enter into my kingdom. Says, Paul, listen, the soul of these men has been shipwrecked because they have rejected and reviled God's salvation and now they are in Satan's hands and not the Savior's hand so that they might learn not to blaspheme. Indeed, these men had lived out a life that demonstrated they were separated from God, that they were not true believers, but that they were make-believers. And so the church has now set them outside of the church in accordance with 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and Matthew chapter 18. They have exercised church discipline and they have removed these two men from the body of Jesus Christ so that they might be set aside. Indeed, the sinning person persons were dismissed from the body. They were taken out of the protective community of the church and Christ's kingdom and handed over to the kingdom of this world, which is ruled by Satan. Alone in Satan's domain, the disciplined person prayerfully would realize his errors, recognize the truth and goodness of God's gospel and choose to repent and return to God and the church in faith and good conscience. 
conscience. Indeed, that is what we see in Matthew chapter 18 when church discipline is exercised. If a brother or sister is in sin and they, they are unrepentant over that sin, then you and I are to go to them, to appeal to them, to repent, to return. And if they hear us, we are to rejoice and celebrate as they come back into the kingdom of God. If they reject us, then we are to take another brother and sister to go to them and once again appeal for them to repent and to return to their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Indeed, if they will not hear us then, we call them before the church body and say, listen, this is what he or she is doing. Living outside of God's will and word. And because of that, we are asking them to repent and return. But if they do not, we are casting them out of the body of Christ. We are handing them over to Satan so that they might learn not to blaspheme, so that they might learn to love and to serve God as their Savior. Obviously, not everyone will repent, but the church is called to practice this loving discipline so that people will awaken to their sin and turn back to the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. On October 22nd, 1707, Admiral Sir Cloudsley Shovel was in charge of a convoy of British naval ships making its way back from Gibraltar to the south of England. It was a foggy and cloudy night in the days before the invention of the navigational chronometer. Indeed, there was a young midshipman that was upon the ship who noticed that in the calculations and the formulations were, had gone awry at some point. He had done his own figuring, his own calculations, and he went to the admiral and said, Sir, I think you've got it wrong, and actually we are dangerously close to the silly islands and the rocks that we will crash into unless we alter our course. Immediately the admiral hung the midshipman on the spot for mutiny. The young man turned out to be right, and all of the naval boats that night ended up at the bottom of the English Channel. 2,000 men were lost that night. Shipwrecked. Shipwrecked. Because the message of truth had been rejected for a lie. Let me ask you this morning. Have you received the message of truth, the gospel of Jesus Christ? Have you been warned by the shipwrecked souls all around us? Of the danger of living a life that rejects and refutes the living God? Have you come this morning to the point where you have said, you know what, God, I see my sin, I see your Savior, and I surrender all to you. Let me challenge you this morning. If you want to know him, if you want to live in fullness, if you want to live in a life, a life more abundant and free, you come to Jesus today. You repent of your sins and lay them down at the foot of the cross, and you surrender your life and your soul to him and no matter what comes, hell or high water, you persevere and you live for him and him alone. You hold to his gospel. You keep the faith. And you live with a good conscience before God and before men. Father, as we close this morning, may you lead us in our time of decision. And Father, may we...